This is One Universe at a Time. I'm Brian Coverline. You know what it feels like to be in love, but how much of that emotion comes from what society expects you to feel? Dr. Kim McGann is a sociologist at Nazareth College in Rochester, New York. She studies how love is constructed by cultural values and how what we expect from love can sometimes be unrealistic. So sociology, that seems to me, being a physicist, that seems to be about as far away from physics as you can get. So um, when you ask people what discipline they think sociology has the most in common with, uh, the most common responses are uh, maybe social work, um, anthropology, psychology comes up quite a bit. Um, And certainly there are things about each of those disciplines that sociology does overlap with in terms of the kinds of things that we study. So the topics, the, the subjects. But if you take a step back, I actually think that sociology has the most in common with physics compared to any other discipline, either in the social sciences, the physical sciences, um, or even in the humanities. I think that they are very much kissing cousins. Okay, I got to hear this. Uh, the reason for that, and this is a great chance for you to tell me whether my understanding of physics as a discipline is correct, but um, in the little bit that I have dabbled in, in reading about physics. So physicists want to understand the constituent components of the physical world, right? What are kind of the building blocks of the physical right. world? And then what are the rules that govern the physical behaviors of components of the physical world? And they might do that at a very macro level. So theory of relativity, the Big Bang, that kind of thing. And they may also look at that at a very micro level, so quantum mechanics. And they want to make those two things play nicely together. So how do we get our macro level understandings to play nicely with our micro level understandings? And then you get string theory, I think, in the middle. That's my my general... smallest level, but yes. Right. So sociologists are actually trying to do the exact same thing, except we're trying to do that for the social world instead of the physical world. So we want to know what are the constituent components of the social world? What are the building blocks of social life and social interactions? And we want to understand how those things work and how they work together or interact or crash into each other um, or help each other at both a very macro level. So we might think of that in terms of our social institutions. So the family, the economy, the law, all the way down to a very micro level, which would have to do with things like face-to-face interaction, like the interaction that you and I are having right now. I know psychology, for example, is one of those things where it would be great if you could have a billion identical people Like we can in physics, we can say, we'll take a billion electrons and we'll do an experiment over and over again. And in psychology, you can't because people are individuals. Sociology, I would think, would have the same type of thing, that different, not only individuals, but cultures are radically different and you don't have a large sample size. The way that we go about understanding, doing our research, doing our science in the social world also, I think, actually has some cool things in common with physics in that we can't always get the things we'd very much like to study present for us when we would like them, or that by studying something, we might change it. If I want to study how college students pick each other up in bars to go hook up, I can't really, I mean, I could go sit with my clipboard at the end of the bar and wave to them, but I'm probably going to change their behavior. Like quantum mechanics, you'd affect the outcome. Exactly, I, I affect the outcome. Staring so. at me, I should ask her out. <laughs> right. 
methodologically speaking, we kind of wrestle with some of the same kinds of issues that I suspect you might as a theoretical physicist. It doesn't mean that there's no point in trying to go and study those things. It's just that you have to pay particular attention to your methods and how you're gathering evidence and what conclusions you're drawing and what your limitations for that kind of thing might be. Now, your area is in the sociology of romance. Is that right? Or that's one of your areas? It's kind of related more to this generally to the sociology of culture. But I have a really interesting project that I did on romantic greeting cards that led me to develop a course um, centered around what I call the sociology of love. That would seem to be really hard to study. It's something that we think of as being very personal. It would seem that way. Um, And that's actually one of the (laughs) things... You're going to tell me I'm wrong. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not going to tell you that you're wrong. I'm going to tell you that you're missing a fabulous opportunity to understand a really interesting aspect of this. Okay, missing an opportunity in romance. I'm familiar with this. (laughs) Okay. One of the things that I wanted to know was, I wanted to know if there were what what we as sociologists would call feeling rules about romantic love. So a feeling rule is just a norm, a socially accepted way of doing things. Um, This is how we're supposed to feel? Right. So feeling rules are just norms about emotions. When someone, when you hear that someone has died, we're supposed to feel sadness. If you hear that someone is going to have a child, you're supposed to feel happy for them. And we most often notice these kinds of norms when our feelings are out of match with them. So you, you know, hear right. somebody's, you know, getting married and you think, oh, it's a terrible idea. That's well, my sister's having a child. That's so great. And exactly. I'm not so happy about that. So yeah. I wanted to know if there were feeling rules about romantic love. The place that I decided to go look for that was in um, what we call a cultural artifact, which is romantic greeting cards. When you have um, marked dates, like an aniv- a wedding anniversary or Valentine's Day, these are days that culturally, right, we we symbolically mark our affection, our romantic affection for someone if mm-hmm. we have someone in our life. So I went out and I sampled 247, <laughs> did a random sample of 247 romantic anniversary cards and Valentine's Day cards. And then I read them. And then I read them again. And then I read them again, which will cure you of ever wanting to send one. Um, <laughs> And what I was doing um, is what um, in sociology um, in some of the social sciences is called a content analysis. Okay. So I'm using, um, instead of the deductive reasoning that is really common in science where you have a hypothesis and then you test it, I'm using inductive reasoning where I'm not sure what's going on, but I go out and I basically gather data first and then I try to make sense of it after I have it. So after reading these cards over and over and over again, I started to see patterns in the messages that were in the cards. And it turned out that there were these seven very clear, very distinct um, feeling rules about romantic love, which were basically a set of norms for how we're supposed to, f- how we're quote unquote supposed to feel about people that we're in romantic relationships with. Okay, so the greeting cards are, are basically presenting our best face of what our emotions are in that sense? That yeah. You're they're, taking the, what the greeting cards say is is what we're supposed to feel. Yes, that they are representative of culture, very broadly, very culturally what we're supposed to feel. That doesn't mean that individuals might not vary from that, but they're a good symbolic representation of our cultural ideas about how we're supposed to feel about our romantic others. Okay, and what, what did you find then? Well, I, I found a set of, uh, a set of feeling rules that are entirely unrealistic, but will probably sound very familiar to people um, listening to this. But when you hear them kind of listed out, you sort of think, wow, 
that's that's an awful lot to ask of one person. Um, okay. So the the first one, which won't be a surprise to anyone, is that um, love is supposed to be monogamous, that you're only supposed to be in love with one person at a time. Right, right. So there are no cards that say, to one of the ones I love. <laughs> <laughs> Right. So they all emphasize to my one and only, you are unique, you are one in a million. So another feeling rule that I found uh, is the idea that love is timeless. To the one I love, I will I will love you to the end of time. I will love you to the end of time and beyond. There were even cards that said, I loved you before I met you, which I thought was a really neat trick. And maybe the theoretical physicists can help us out with our time travel to figure out how exactly that works. Right. There was also the idea that love grows. So lots of imagery to plants and that love was something that needed tending and care. But along with that, that love is something that improves, that it gets, it only gets better. So there were lots of cards that talked about how every day with you is even better than the last one, that, it, that there's never any downsides, that it's always getting better, it's always improving. And then the last one that's probably really key uh, is the idea that love is essential, that it's the most important thing. Your love for your significant other is the most important thing in your life. So it's the ultimate form of friendship. This person who is your significant other is really sort of the center of your universe. It reminds me a little bit of this this meme where it's the, I think it's the overly obsessed girlfriend, the overly obsessed boyfriend, you know, that just everything, the entire universe revolves around this one person. yeah, and they it need sounds to... more creepy than than happy. <laughs> well, and it's it's also I mean it's that both people are trying to do this, so it's not that it's you know even right, gendered. It's not just one. Um, and if you think about it, you know, taken all together, this is this is a pretty unrealistic set of expectations for any one person. I mean, you have to be awesome. You have to be awesome before the person even meets you, because who knows, you know, if they fell in love before they met you. Uh, your relationship has to be great the entire time. It can do nothing but improve. You can't hit any roadblocks. It has to be the most important thing in your life, and it's going to be that way forever. I want to go sit in my room and read a book by myself. Like. <laughs> go, go away and climb into a <laughs> hole, yeah. It would seem like the, the selection of who you pursue or, or who you might choose as a partner would be also in some sense unrealistic because you need to find that absolute perfect person, the person that you can be absolutely obsessed about. Yeah, it it really does set up, I think, a very unrealistic set of expectations for what we expect out of um, significant others. The idea that whoever our significant other is, that they are somehow uniquely, ideally, only them suited um, to us, which of course, there's six billion people on the planet. Um, there's probably more than one match out there. <laughs> right, right. You probably have better chances than one in seven billion. Right. <laughs> do you think this is something that the people impose upon themselves? Do people, do you think, actually buy into this? That that's what they should be doing? I do think that we do. Um, obviously, it's kind of, you know, individual results will vary. So it's not that everybody subscribes to this all of the time. But using something like the greeting cards um, as, as my data, they're a nice symbolic representation of our general cultural beliefs about love. So you very well may get something very different if you interviewed college students versus couples who have been married for 40 years and you know what is love about. But the cards are really representing um, our general cultural values around or norms around romantic love. And I, I do think that people tend to use it 
use them as a measuring stick. So when people are trying to think of, you know, when they're thinking about their own relationships and am I happy and is this a good relationship? Do I want to be in this relationship? The bar in terms of quality, if you will, that a relationship Mm -hmm. has to get over is really socially set. You know, whether or not we feel happy with someone depends on how we think they should be treating us. Right. And that comes from socialization that comes from culture, you know, whether we think that's okay. The way we feel about a relationship is how we think we should feel about a relationship. Yeah. Or at least the standard that we're using to compare um, is certainly something that I think is is socially set. Have you looked at cards in different eras? The first round of cards um, with the rules I just talked about, um, so those were from 1996. I've done this two more times, actually. And one of the things that I found in the last batch that I did about five years ago is there's a new emphasis in romantic greeting cards on feeling lucky to have the other person. It's very interesting. That was not in the first, the original batch of 250. But there's a lot of cards that also talk about how lucky I feel to have found you, how lucky I feel to be with you. And I think that that's reflecting some general social instability going on in our culture. So you have the economic crisis, you have people losing their jobs, right? So more and more we have our home lives, our personal lives, our romantic relationships being asked to sort of carry our happiness, you know, our stability and our happiness right. in a way that maybe our, our jobs or our public life isn't able to do. And so I think that gets reflected in cards that talk about how lucky they feel to be in a relationship. Right. And if we're lucky, then that means that we're, in some ways we're not deserving of this yeah. because it's random chance. Right. It's not something that we've in some sense earned. Right. You're listening to One Universe at a Time. I'm your host, Brian Coberline. We've been talking with Dr. Kim McGann, Associate Professor of Sociology and Anthropology at Nazareth College, about the sociology of love. In the second half of our show, she and I will trade places, and she will ask me the questions. Today, Dr. McGann is curious about a number of things, including careers in physics and how amateur astronomers can deepen their understanding of the night sky. I would love to know um, what discipline you think physics has the most in common with. I've talked a lot with a former guest who's a psychologist, and we've talked about the comparisons between psychology and physics. It's interesting because physics, in some sense, is seen as the impractical physical science in that, you know, you can if you can do physical science, then do engineering or do biology or do chemistry. But physics is about the most fundamental aspects. And so it's it's often seen as, well, you want to do physics if you want to be a professor or, you know, if you want to go into, you know, the very purest of pure. And it's not quite like that. There are fields like that are in physics that are very pure, but a lot of them are very practical. And, you know, one of the common jokes about physics is you get a physics degree so you become an engineer. A lot of physics students who have degrees go off to become, they, their job becomes something that's under the title of engineer, whether you know they're actually working with engineers or doing something that's applied. Are there jobs for someone who has, a, I think it would be a BS in physics, that say, you know, this is a requirement, you know, you're gonna be a junior level physicist, or is it more broad where they're like, whether it's engineering or something else, where they're, there's not a specific job for that, but their skills would be related to other jobs. Yeah, a lot of it is the skills are related to things. That, that when you have a degree in physics, you're really looking at a broad set of skills, both in problem solving and in 
how to understand how the world works at a basic level. Some will go specifically into areas related to physics, so something like material science or mathematics or computer programming, and their physics background that they've used skills in addition to their physics towards their job. You know, there are people who go into physics undergrad to become pre-med because it's seen as somewhat prestigious to have a physics degree and you're applying for med school. But there are certainly jobs that you can do having a physics degree. They won't necessarily always be called physicists. You know, you're not going to be called a physicist, but, but there are lots of opportunities there. So I had a physics, uh, my physics teacher in high school, a great guy named Ed Foy. I'd love it if by some chance he was listening to this. But uh, anyway, he, he was charged with um, teaching some about-to-graduate seniors who were not very interested, you know, the, the basics of physics. And one of the things he used to tell us when we were working on our problems in class was that a big, clear picture will solve most problems. Um, uh, something that I very much took to heart in all kinds of things. But I'm wondering, actually, in the kind of work that you do, how important, actually, is the ability to kind of visualize things, um, you know, versus I'm, I'm picturing sort of physics, you know, in the movies, and it would be lines of equations on a board yep. versus other ways. You know, I've seen some PBS specials where there's these great visualizations. And so in the work that you actually do, um, how important or what role does kind of visualizing play? It plays some role. I mean, my area is more in astronomy and astrophysics. We use a lot of data and it can be useful to visualize that data. And we love being able to see the visuals of that data, but a lot of it is crunching the data. So, so we're using a lot more mathematical tools to get you know, an, a, some statistical answer out of what the data says. And it paints a certain picture, but a lot of it is not the image that we see. So I don't, I don't necessarily need to have a photographic image of a galaxy in order to study the galaxy. What I need are the data points of where the stars are and how fast they're moving. Got so, it. so a data table is much more useful to me than a pretty picture of stars. Got it. So thinking about stargazing, you know, as someone, so I'm a very casual observer of the stars. So I, you know, live out in the country, so I'm lucky enough to be able to see the stars beautifully without too much light pollution at night, and I can identify the occasional constellation if it's super obvious. Um, What kinds of observations, if any, might someone like me be able to make in the night sky that might tell me something about the way the universe works. Uh, You know, even if it's something that physicists already know and have proven or shown, but is there anything that I could look for or look at that would be, if you see this, it's an indication, or this is how we know this other thing has happened? Yeah, I think one of the things you could do is, even with the naked eye, but certainly with a small pair of binoculars or a small telescope, is you can look at nebula, which are fuzzy things in the sky. So the original idea of a nebula was that it was just something that wasn't star-like or planet-like. So it was fuzzy. It was nebulous. In early astronomy, we just knew that they weren't planets or stars. But what we now know is that there are a wide range of things. So there are nebula that are actually galaxies. And they're millions of light years away. So if you look at the Andromeda galaxy, which was once called the Andromeda Nebula, then you're actually looking at an entire galaxy that's similar to the Milky Way, but millions of light years away. There are what are called planetary nebula, and they're, they're somewhat roundish and they look somewhat planetary. They are actually the remnants of exploded stars. So you can see the, the after remains of a dead star 
as a nebula. You can see something like the Orion Nebula, which is a region where stars are actually forming. There's a whole bunch of different nebula that comes from you know all sorts of different things where stars form, where they're where they've died, of other galaxies, you know, clusters of stars that look fuzzy without a telescope. All of these things are within that broad area. And with a small telescope or a small pair of binoculars, you can see that. And that really kind of paints out the kind of range of what's out there. So you mentioned that there were nebula that are now galaxies, you know, that now we realize are galaxies. Right. Um, and that actually, so that reminds me, I, I have to bring up Pluto. <laughs> so when I grew up, it was my very energetic mother sliced up nine pickles. That was how yeah. I remembered all now the planets. Now it's sliced up nine Something. My, Something. My energetic mother has, has nothing to give us. I And I very clearly remember, um, you know, hearing in the news all that sort of hubbub that, you know, Pluto has been demoted. But what I'm what I'd love to know is, are there other things in physics or in, in astronomy where you have kind of the rules change, you know, or the definitions mm-hmm. change? So, you know, Pluto, which it was a fact that Pluto was a planet. And now it's a fact that Pluto is not a planet. Right. Um, and that's because the parameters there, they're changed. And so I'm curious if there's other things that in your scientific community that there's maybe debate about or that people have changed a definition or, you know, do people debate whether this is a nebula or a galaxy or... One of the interesting things with, I think, would be different types of quasars and radio galaxies and things like this. When when we first started looking beyond the visible spectrum, when we looked at radio frequencies, for example, one of the things we found was something called a quasar. And a quasar was originally called a, a quasi-stellar radio source. So it was a, it was a almost a point source of radio energy. We didn't really know what it was. We knew that it it seemed to be very localized and it seemed to be far away. We found other things that were like that. We found um, things that are called blazars that are very bright on a range of spectrums. We found what are called radio galaxies and they're giving off these strong lobes of radio waves around them. They all have these different names and the reason they have these different names is because when we first observed them, they had very different properties. And so they looked like separate things. And one of the things we know now is that quasars and blazars and all of these types of very bright objects are actually powered by supermassive black holes in the center of a galaxy. So, so all of these things are actually energetic supermassive black holes that are gathering material and consuming material and then giving off this intense energy as that material's kind of squeezed down into the black hole. The orientation of the galaxy will determine what it looks like. So if you have a galaxy that's facing you, so that the pole is facing you, all of that energy is thrown off in your direction and it looks very bright. So it looks like a blazar or a quasar. If it's more edge on so that the, the poles are streaming out material above and below, then what you would see is lobes of, of energy or radio waves that looks like a radio galaxy. And so you can see what, what we thought was a whole bunch of separate things is now one combined thing. And that happens when we get more data, when we get a better observations about something, our classifications change, our names don't. So we still call these things by the old names. People are still gonna call Pluto a planet regardless of what we classify it as. And as much as people complain about that, we still call things radio galaxies and quasars and you know, we can, 
formally call them active galactic nebulae, but <laughs> nobody calls them that typically. We want to call them quasars or radio galaxies or whatever we're working on. Yeah, this, the same sorts of definitional issues that happen in, in other disciplines yeah, as well. Yeah, the it's understanding just, changes, but yeah. the names stay the same. Yeah, that's, that's a great example of that. One of the things about science is that a lot of times many of our, our sort of greatest leaps forward in understanding in science have to do not with getting some new fantastic piece of data or evidence, you know, that we couldn't have gotten before. Sometimes that happens, but a lot of times it comes from seeing the same data in a new way, right? So a paradigm shift, some kind right. of a you know sort of right. flash of insight or different way of, of seeing the relationship um, or patterns in our data. So I'm wondering just if in your own research, um, if you've ever had a particular kind of aha moment, you know, like suddenly maybe coming to a conclusion or seeing something you didn't before or kind of realizing a direction to go just that sticks out in your memory as a like, oh, there's one. <laughs> one of the ones I remember is actually when I was fairly young. I think I was probably about 11 or 12. One of the galaxies you can see, the Andromeda galaxy, you can actually see with the naked eye. And on a particularly dark sky, if you know exactly where to look, you see what looks like almost just a small thumbprint of chalk dust on the night sky. And I remember for the first time finding that. And, and you're looking at this, and it's not very impressive with the naked eye. It just looks like a little smudge of light. But to have that that you're looking at and then realize at the same time that it actually is millions of light years away, that the light you're seeing has traveled for two and a half million years to get to your eye. And you're, and you're looking at this. You're staring at this thing, and, and that light has traveled that far for you to get that image. That's one of those things that you just kind of connect what the real scale of the universe actually is. You know, with the naked eye, you, you're actually looking back in time. You're looking at something that's billions of years away and what that means. That's a great example. I, I remember as a kid learning, I can't remember what the distance was, but you know how long it takes the sun's light to get to Earth. And right. that just boggling my mind as a kid that I was like, wait, so if the sun exploded, I wouldn't know for you seven minutes. wouldn't know minutes. it for eight minutes. <laughs> That's right. That, that was yeah. just that whole concept that you know the world is not necessarily as it appears to be. Right. And um, that's actually one of the biggest tools that we have in astronomy. Because if we look at things that are more distant, we're looking at things as they were, not as they are. Right. And so we can actually use that to look at things like how galaxies evolve over time. What were galaxies like a billion years ago or two billion years ago? Because we can find galaxies that are that far away. Yeah. And so we know the light from this particular galaxy is two and a half billion years away. And so that's what a typical galaxy was like then as opposed to one that's closer, and we can see how they are now. That is a wonderful research tool to have access to, to basically be able to get in your TARDIS. And, yeah, we can go you know, back go in time back with and, astronomy. And, and, and actually do the observations then, what all of the social scientists would you know, just love to be able to do is... <laughs> to have you know, a telescope and look back at the 1900s. Right, and, and actually be able to observe. I mean, we, you know, we have other kinds of you know, records and data, but yeah, the ability to sort of be the fly on the wall, but actually be seeing it as it's happening. Cause you actually can watch them rather than what they write down. Yeah. People ask you, you know, can we time travel? You get to say sort of, which is. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Do you ever go out and just stargaze? Is that, you know, or is it kind of, has it become work? I have trouble watching movies. My friends say, would you just shut off the sociology because I say, you know, these gender roles are ridiculous. Or do you see the misrepresentations of, as opposed to just, you know, turning on a movie and, and watching it. So I wonder if maybe the same thing happens to you with something like the stars where the rest of us might go out and be like, look at what the beautiful night sky. Are you looking up saying, oh, I didn't plot that data point. I got to yeah, do that at the office tomorrow. 
No, I think that's one of the things about the night sky is that you can always appreciate it. You know, I don't always have to be on in terms of taking data. In fact, most of the data that I would have, I couldn't see with the naked eye anyway. So it's it's farther away or it's too dim and, you know, I'm not going to be able to see it. So I still appreciate the night sky. I, I get a lot of questions about movies and stuff, hmm. you know, being in the science background. And the standard thing is, oh, did you see something scientific in a movie? Yeah, then it's wrong. It, <laughs> it, it's not going to be realistic. It doesn't really bother me as long as the story is interesting. Right. I mean, you can have movies that are that are interesting because they're interesting to see. And Gravity was one of these that that you know the the realistic version of Gravity is yep we're dead. <laughs> it's a very short movie, but but from a storytelling standpoint, it's interesting. It's good from a story standpoint, and a lot of you know I'll watch the comic book movies with the best of them and and I'm not worried about oh wait no Iron Man couldn't do that because that would defy the law of momentum it's like no Iron Man is cool that's good <laughs> we've been talking with Dr. Kim McGann an associate professor of sociology and anthropology at Nazareth College our program is produced by Mark Gillespie at RIT with support from the RIT College of Science I'm your host Brian Koberlein Thanks for listening to One Universe at a Time.